Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. And this is going to be part two with Medea Benjamin. Uh, don't forget a donate button at the top of the webpage. And as much as you might be getting tired hearing me say that, I'm sort of tired having to say it, but what the heck, that's what nonprofit journalism is. And if you're watching on YouTube, hit the subscribe button and here's the music. So this is a follow-up discussion uh, on part one of my interview with Medea Benjamin, and I'm not going to do the long introduction again, but here's Medea. She's the uh, co-founder of Code Pink um, and author of, uh, what, four or five books on foreign policy. Thanks for joining me again, Medea. Good to be on with you, Paul. So a few years ago, uh, you, I believe you were there. There was a People's Summit held in Chicago. Uh, Bernie Sanders spoke, the nurses' union uh, organized it, and there were sessions on all kinds of topics. And I remember that those of us who do care about this were talking to each other and saying, hold on, where's the session on foreign policy? And there wasn't one. Um, now, it's interesting that when Biden and, and uh, Sanders had these uh, working groups, uh, the, uh, there wasn't a working group on foreign policy in the lead up to the elections. Now, maybe because there was such differences on foreign policy, they figured they couldn't get together or nobody cared. I don't know. But, you know, you and your, your partner in crime, Jody Evans, and the quote, pink women, and a few others have been like, you know, these dedicated fighters in, for an anti-war movement in the United States. But it's been quite a while, maybe since the massive demonstrations against the Iraq war, uh, that there has been much of an anti-war movement in the United States. And I, I, I said this in an interview the other day, and somebody wrote in on YouTube, I don't know what left you're talking about. The left I know, we're all interested in foreign policy. Well, yeah, but boy, it's, it ain't much. So if you agree with that proposition, uh, why? I think it's complex, and maybe we can explore some of those different areas. We had a very strong anti-war movement. Well, I'm old enough to remember the anti-war movement of the Vietnam days. That's where I got my uh, start, and that was because there was a draft. And when you have a draft, you have uh, an anti-war movement that has a lot of young people and a lot of energy to it. Um, the uh, end of the draft did a lot to... Uh, and uh, anti-war movement. The Iraq war um, built up an anti-war movement and we had several demonstrations with hundreds of thousands of people out in the streets. Uh, then when Obama came in, the anti-war movement fell apart. And I think it's for several reasons. People can, can I ask a question before you go there? Yeah. Didn't, didn't it fizzle out really even before Obama came in? I know, I mean, there, how much of an anti-war movement was in, in the year or two before Obama was elected? Well, you know, when the wars start dragging on, there becomes less and less of an anti-war movement. Uh, but I would say that we were still able to um, mobilize people. We still had small groups all throughout the country. Uh, Code Pink still had chapters around 
Um, so I would say there still was an anti-war movement, certainly not as uh, strong as when you think you can stop a war. And especially when people get demoralized because with all the work we did to stop the war in Iraq, we didn't stop that war. Uh, so you're right, it was much less than before, but I would still say there was an anti-war movement. And, and the reason I make the point is that some people were arguing, even some of the, what I'm not sure they're really left, but they think of themselves as left, that it's better to have Trump back again because there's more possibility of an anti-war movement. Well, first of all, I didn't see any big anti-war movement during the first four years of Trump. And the last time there was a sustainable anti-war movement was actually when the Democrats were in power, and that's the Vietnam War. Now, yes, there was a draft, uh, but it's, you know, it's not like when the Republicans are in, there's some sustainable anti-war movement going on. So anyway, continue. Well, let's remember that there were 50,000 Americans that lost their lives in, in Vietnam. And the uh, powers that be understood that there's other ways to make war. You don't have to have a draft. You can do a lot of it through air power. Uh, you want to mim minimize casualties of Americans. You can even now, high tech, have them be sitting in ergonomic chairs in air-conditioned rooms uh, and pressing buttons to kill people through drones. In fact, uh, General Atomics, the drone maker, just bragged this week how they can now, um, you can do a drone strike on your laptop. You don't need any clunky kind of control uh, mechanism. So um, wars have changed and there's a lot of contracting, a lot of private contractors, uh, and there's a lot of proxy wars where we pay other people to go to war for us. So the ways of uh, going to war have changed when you don't see Americans coming back in body bags. And remember, actually, in, in the uh, Iraq war, it was illegal to photograph Americans coming back in, in uh, uh, their caskets, uh, flag-draped caskets coming into Dover. So uh, I think the ways of, of fighting wars uh, have less what they call, I hate the term, but skin in the game, uh, less people actively um, suffering from that. And uh, that cuts down on the number of people who are going to be actively involved. I mentioned that I felt that the anti-war movement fizzled when Obama came in because people didn't want to protest the first black president. They also felt that he was going to get us out of the wars. At least he promised to get us out of the war in Iraq. And then there were other issues that became much more urgent. We were in the midst of a financial crisis. Uh, students were uh, losing their ability to go to college and people were losing their homes and uh, there was a lot of economic chaos. Uh, and then as time went by, uh, the environmental movement picked up and a lot of young people who would normally have gone into the anti-war movement saw the urgency in front of them of dealing with the climate. And um, we lost a lot of the Code Pink people who decided that the climate issues were much more urgent. Uh, and then the wars just became part of the background noise. You know, after you have um, war for more than a decade going on, for young people, it's just that's the way the U.S. is. It fights wars. Uh, and it uh, start, stops getting covered by the media, so you barely know that these wars are still existing. So those are some of the reasons, and I'm sure there are more, 
but we have felt the difficulty of building back an anti-war movement ever since the days uh, that Obama came in. And one of the things that's also gone by the wayside, and this is not connected directly with Obama, because it had happened before that, but as we talked about in the in the first interview, uh, there's no movement against nuclear war for reduction of nuclear weapons, and you know it, it's pe- this idea that it's not an existential threat because the Cold War is over, quote unquote, Cold War is over because. They've, they've got a new one going with Russia and China now. Um, but but the, it, it, people don't get how close we are to nuclear annihilation. You know, a lot of the people I've talked to, including Daniel Ellsberg, who know this issue, they really don't believe it's a question of if there's going to be a nuclear war. It's about when. It, that it's just it's practically inevitable the more weapons you have, and and you know even if it's accidental, and more, and it's more likely to be started accidentally than deliberately, uh, but that but the the threat's very real. But there's there's virtually no movement, hardly anywhere. I, there's a little bit, but not on any scale that breaks through even progressive consciousness. Well, there is a global movement to end nuclear weapons, and that's very strong in certain countries. In the United States, it's not. And and, uh, let me add Canada, too. There's not a pipsqueak in Canada. Uh Uh-huh. Well, I think part of the problem, and this is related to the larger anti-war movement, is, you know, how do you fight nuclear weapons? How do you fight the military-industrial complex? Um, especially for young people who want to see the results of their work uh, in their lifetimes. (laughs) Uh, If you give them the choice, do you want to fight against nuclear weapons or do you want to get an electric fleet in your uh, university or do you want to get your town to uh, help subsidize solar energy? You know, what are they going to pick? Something that's real, tangible, that they can say, wow, I helped to do this or is something that is really going to take um, many decades and you might never see the results, and you might well lose. Well, you can kind of say that about anything, but I think it's part of the failure of the, and I include myself in this, because it's only since I've been talking to Ellsberg am I focused on this, but there's some very concrete things. For example, vastly reducing or eliminating the fleet of ICBMs. Uh, they're very dangerous. They can go off accidentally. They have no real military function, and they cost ridiculous amounts of money. And there's a whole other expansion taking place of ICBMs. Like some of the issues, are, you know, they can be quite concrete. Like for example, uh, at least the United, could, the United States could say they won't have a first strike possibility. You know, just take that off the table. But it, I, it's again part of the weakness of the anti-war movement that this issue doesn't become more focused. Yes, and and uh, people are not educated about the issues by the mainstream media. You really never hear about these, and so it doesn't go into people's consciousness. Uh, and we haven't had a nuclear weapon used uh, since the time of World War II, so uh, it's not something that's immediate in people's minds, and that generation is dying off. 
Um, yet, on the other hand, when Trump was in power, there was suddenly a lot of interest around the first use issue and trying to stop Trump from having the ability to, quote, put his finger on the nuclear button. Um, there's a, a lot of Democrats who feel much more comfortable about it when it's a Democrat in power, uh, which they shouldn't be. But um, we did have a flurry of activity under Trump around uh, that issue. And, and let me just point out two things that I've learned from talking to Dan Ellsberg. Uh, number one, um, there are perhaps several hundred people with their finger on nuclear buttons. It's not just the president. That's an entire fiction of that this thing, the suitcase the president carries around, and he's the only one that can do it. Uh, the, the authority's been delegated to many, many people. Um, and, and so the scenario in Dr. Strangelove of some crazy guy take, in charge of a nuclear base being able to launch is actually quite true. Uh, these, th there are people at his level that could launch. That's part of why this whole situation is so dangerous. Um, and the other thing is that nuclear weapons have been used since World War II as a threat. And I, I encourage everyone to read Ellsberg's book, Doomsday Machine, because he goes through the various examples of times from Reagan on uh, where, where there's been the threat of using nuclear weapons has been part of uh, American foreign policy in very real terms, not just sort of as an abstraction. Um, so what do we do about it? Uh, like the reason I think nuclear weapons is, is you know, perhaps something that actually could galvanize people if they got the danger is like the draft. It directly affects people's lives or if you get the connection. I, for a long time, climate change was an abstraction. And I know nuclear war seems like an abstraction, uh, but there ain't nothing abstract about it. Well, I think it's a little more concrete when we talk in terms of money that's being spent and where the money needs to go. And I think the pandemic has put that in a greater focus for people to understand that the threats to the United States are not coming from abroad. Uh, they're coming from at home. And not just the pandemic, it's the white nationalist movement that uh, we recognize not only trying to take over the Capitol, but in these uh, massacres that happen now on a regular basis. And that, um, uh, and, and a lot more people do understand the climate crisis. And I think under the Biden administration, we have some good people in government now who really care about those issues. And we might see some real progress. Uh, all of that means that monies at some point have to be accounted for. You can't have these trillion dollar COVID relief packages and never say, well, okay, uh, now uh, when does the bill come due? And every year, the fact that we spend about a trillion dollars in, uh, uh, in uh, um, the Pentagon budget plus the other expenses like nuclear weapons that are not coming out of the Pentagon budget but coming from energy, um, that, that there is more of a call for shifting the money. We had a vote last year uh, to cut the military budget by 10%. In the past, we would have gotten a handful of Congress people. This time, we got over 90. Um, there is now a, uh, a caucus in Congress called the um, Defense Spending Reduction Caucus. Uh, to try to highlight this issue. There were just 40 members of Congress that wrote a letter to Biden about this issue before his budget comes out. 
And we at Code Pink are part of a coalition that's been building and going down into local communities, having them pass resolutions calling for a shifting of the money and hooking up with the Black Lives Matter uh, folks and others to say, take money out of the police departments uh, and take money out of the military and shift it into uh, the needs we really have here at home. So I think there is a place where we can get some momentum, where we have groups like the Poor People's Campaign that have put it front and center together with racism, poverty, militarism, and climate uh, as four issues we have to see intertwined and deal dealt with. Um, uh, so I am hopeful that uh, that is an avenue that we can use to perhaps not build up an anti-war movement that's going to get out on the streets to say, bring the troops back from uh, Iraq or Afghanistan, but is going to say, shift the focus of U.S. foreign policy away from militarism and towards dealing with the uh, the real issues of national security that affect us today. And let me just add to that. While there has to be a just transition for fossil fuel workers uh, to a green economy, and, and I, I think, and I don't even understand why Biden has, hasn't been talking about that, because even in pure electoral terms, it would be good for them. They should just promise fossil fuel workers that you are not going to lose wages. If you go and start building windmills and windmill salaries are not as high as coal salaries, then we'll make up the difference. But I think they need to do the same thing in arms manufacturing. They have to say we're going to convert arms manufacturing as part of a green infrastructure plan to making you know green infrastructure, whether it's windmills or solar panels or retrofitting. But say the same thing to workers in the arms manufacturing industry, that it will be a just transition away from so much arms manufacturing, and you aren't going to lose any wages. But I, I haven't heard that from this administration. Uh, because they're not talking about it at cutting the Pentagon budget at all. Um, I do think, though, that there are some areas uh, where it would be hard to compete with the Pentagon in terms of wages uh, because it's so out of whack from the civilian sector. I remember meeting with machinists uh, and they said, uh, good luck, uh, sweetie, in trying to have this conversion. Um, a lot of our union members retire as millionaires. They get stock in the companies. And when I go to their retirement parties, um, you, you recognize how much money they've made over their lifetimes um, being connected to the Pentagon. Right. And when you talk to engineers who uh, want to pay their mortgages and don't want to work for the Pentagon, uh, they will say to you, what are we supposed to do? The civilian sector doesn't have nearly uh, the amount of money that the Pentagon can throw around. So it's a little bit different with the fossil fuel industry because they are private industries that are competing maybe with each other. Uh, but there does have to be a paring down of some of the tremendous profits that have been made in the Pentagon um, contract. Yeah, but, but, but that's a very different thing. The profits and the wages aren't the same thing. And I know the wages are high. But if you look at the actual numbers of people at that high wage rate, like mechanics or, you know, not at the more senior levels, 
it's not that many people. I, I don't know the number, but it really isn't that many people. It wouldn't take that much money to keep paying them what they were getting and just say, okay, you'll, you'll just get what you were getting. Yes, I'm just saying, yes, at the higher levels, they're just going to have to be um, significant cuts. But for workers uh, who don't buy into stocks in the companies, um, sure. And there are uh, examples of that that have already been done when there have been base conversions in the United States. Uh, and uh, so the, the, the way to do that, um, we saw in the 70s and 80s during the time of a lot of those conversions. Uh, and it could certainly happen again. Uh, there just has to be the political will to do that. And as you said, we haven't seen it yet from the Biden administration. Uh, but I think um, we do, as a peace movement that is rebuilding itself, we have more of a, a, a possibility of affecting the Biden administration when, than we did the Trump administration. And that gives me a lot more optimism uh, because uh, during the Trump years, um, not only was it hard to build up an anti-war movement, but people were saying, who the heck are we going to influence? We're not going to, you know, uh, we don't have any friends in the White House. Um, and, and now we do. And um, so I think that there is more possibilities under this administration uh, with the squad that we have in the Congress. And well, let me ask people. let me ask about the squad and, and what I call the left progressives in Congress, because a lot of the members of the progressive caucus aren't always so progressive. Uh, but how are they doing on, for, well, on they foreign policy? Focused. They haven't focused very much on foreign policy. Ilhan Omar is fantastic and has introduced lots of legislation, but it hasn't gone very far because it doesn't have the backing of the whole progressive caucus, but she's been excellent on this. Um, uh, Rashida Tlaib has been very good on, on, on some of the issues, like the issues related to Palestine. Uh, AOC herself has not been very involved in foreign policy issues, but when she has it, uh, except for Venezuela, it's been pretty good. Uh, hasn't been very good on uh, Israel-Palestine, but that's always a tough one. Um, we have some of the. Well, hold on, members. hold on. Don't let her off the hook on Israel-Palestine. What, what's her? No, no. What's we're her record on her that? We're, we're, we're. Well, you know, her record is that she'll sign on to some of the easier things, like um, uh, the bill supporting the um, uh, the the children not being uh, sentenced in mi military courts and held in military prisons. Uh, but um, she doesn't initiate anything, and it's hard to get her to focus on uh, foreign policy issues in general. I mean, she's so smart, she knows that where she'll get the support from the uh, broad sectors of the population is around domestic issues. So it's been hard. On the other hand, I think uh, somebody like Jamal Bowman, who uh, took over a seat where there was a very important Democrat in terms of his influence, uh, in domestic issues, uh, he part of his campaigning was about changing foreign policy, and he has been very good. Uh, there are people like Marie Newman, a new member of this expanded squad, who one of the initial things she did was to speak out against the Israelis not uh, giving uh, vaccines to the uh, to the Palestinians, and that was quite a brave thing to do as a new member of Congress. Uh, so I think we have possibilities 
uh, with the squad. And I think that the Progressive Caucus now under Pramila Jayapal is going to get more serious about what does it mean to be a member of the Progressive Caucus. And they're now going to have to agree with the progressives on a certain percentage of the votes in order to stay in the Progressive Caucus. And certainly there'll be a number of them that deal with foreign policy. And how's Bernie doing? His, his, his thinking on Israel-Palestine seemed to evolve over the years. Uh, when he appointed Cornell West to, uh, to the platform committee back when, uh, was pretty interesting because Cornell took quite a strong, for Democratic Party, very strong stand on Palestinian rights. Um, he also seems to have gotten uh, more out of the Cold War thinking. I know Sanders used to talk about NATO in positive terms. I, I'm not so sure he still does. Um, but how do you assess Sanders on this? Well, he too is much, much, much more focused on the domestic issues. But uh, what he has done on the foreign policy front has been some of the best work in the Senate. Uh, we relied on him heavily to bring these war power resolutions against the U.S. Uh, involvement in the wars in Yemen, and he was critical uh, in doing that and, and pushing for that to be passed by both houses of Congress, which is pretty astounding. Uh, he's been very good on the issue of going back into Iran nuclear deal. I remember after the campaign was over, which is too bad, him doing a major foreign policy speech in which he uh, focused a lot on Iran and talked about the U.S. history of overthrowing Mossadegh and, uh, and how uh, the U.S. is responsible for what is, uh, Iran is today. Um, so I think uh, he's been one of the best senators in terms of foreign policy, and he is involved uh, through our revolution uh, that organization with Progressive International, an international organization that is trying to push um, progressive foreign policies. But, you know, he's in charge of a very powerful budget committee um, dealing uh, with issues here at home about who's going to get access to uh, the U.S. Um, dollars. And he's um, so very consumed with such important issues. We need other people like Chris Murphy and others to um, to take up the mantle. But can't he, as, as chair of the Budget Committee, raise serious hearings about reducing the Pentagon budget? Yes, and we are talking to his staff about that. Um, uh, he, you know, he is not as great on the, the Pentagon budget issues as we would like. He is, talks in general terms about how it has to be cut, but he doesn't do anything specifically. Even Elizabeth Warren during the campaign was more specific than he was, uh, identifying areas of the Pentagon budget like the overseas contingency operation, which is just a slush fund for uh, the, the Pentagon, uh, for that being cut. And we're working with others to focus on the cutting of foreign bases and how much money could be saved. And there's uh, very little uh, of a, um, uh, a, 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 a support base in the United States uh, um, that wants to keep a lot of these foreign bases over, open. So we think that's an area uh, where we could make some progress. 
Um, so I think there's a, a lot more that um, Bernie Sanders could do in terms of the Pentagon. And, and, I, I, and one other issue I want to say is that he supported the stationing of the F-35 uh, in his home state. And that was something that a lot of local groups had been um, uh, had been uh, trying to um, lobby him about and actually protest his policy on that and never quite changed his mind on that one. Well, is that part of what's holding him back on this whole issue, both his record and current concerns, quote unquote, in Vermont about keeping a piece of the military pie there? Right. And it was an issue, it always goes back to the issue about jobs. Hmm. That's where I get back to my conversion issue. Just promise people their wages. It's not that much money. The way they're creating money, the amount of money the Fed has been shoving into the stock market to create a ridiculous bubble. It's, I, I, I went through this with Bob Poland. If you look at the numbers of people, the economist Bob Poland, if you, if you look at the number of people involved in fossil fuel in Pennsylvania, it would be a pittance to promise them all that you keep your same wages, even if fossil fuel gets phased out in Pennsylvania, you won't lose a penny. It's not, I can't remember the numbers, it's actually not that much money. And I think the same thing would apply. And Bob Poland is the one who did the, the, the great study showing that uh, money put into the military was the worst in terms of job creation. So it's not only about how much money each worker gets, it's how many jobs uh, are we uh, opening up in the economy and, and right. just about any other sector would open up more jobs than putting money into the military. Yeah, if I remember correctly, it was 10 to 1. If you put a dollar into military and a dollar into education, you got uh, well, echo of was, 10 to 1 in favor of education. I think. What was it? Was it was 2 to 1. 2 to 1. Oh, I'm two sorry. I thought it was 10 to 1. All right. 2 to 1 is still pretty good. <laughs> All right. I, my memory exaggerated. Um, anyway, okay, well, that's just the beginning of a conversation. Let's try to broaden this more. Uh, uh, these issues are existential. Climate change is existential, but so is militarization and nuclear war is existential. Thanks for joining me, Medea. Wonderful talking to you, and let's hope the next time we talk, we have a more broad and powerful anti-war movement. Oh, I don't want to wait that long. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Don't forget the donate button. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube. And uh, see you next time.